Lord, we are once again are so grateful we can gather together as your people and sit at your feet and hear from your word how we might be your people to one another within our families, within this church family, and to this community. And I ask, Lord, that as your word is brought forth, that your words would be mine, that you would take our minds and think through them, that you would bend our wills to your own, and that you would take each and every one of our hearts and set them on fire as we have prayed earlier with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who we look at closely today. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this is our second week in the words of the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, where we get to the section of Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. And, you know, I thought one of the great texts to do that was the one we did last month with Peter. You know, you remember, who do people say that I am? And I go, rats, I should, I should not preach on that. I should have put it out here. But when you're, when you're in the lectionary, you don't make up, you know, that the lectionary tells you what you preach on. And so I thought, well, what text communicates this whole section of Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord? And you know, as I was reading Philippians 2, it does it very, very well. So I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Philippians 2, because we're going to look at Paul's perspective who is this Jesus Christ's Son, our Lord, as he writes to the church in Philippi. Philippi, as you might remember, we did Philippians, I think in the summer of 2007, 2008, those of you here with me, I can't remember, but we did. Um, Paul ministered at Philippi during his second missionary journey, Acts chapter 16. He spent three months in Philippi, planting the church. And the ministry of Philippi marked Paul's entrance into Macedonia when he got a vision to go over to Macedonia when he was at Troas, Acts chapter 16. And during this first stay in Philippi, he later briefly visited the city on his third missionary journey as well in Acts chapter 20. Many were brought to faith in Christ, and Paul nurtured them, and, and this would form the core of the church at Philippi. Among them were Lydia, you might remember the, the businesswoman who opened up her home to Paul. You may remember the Philippian jailer. Paul and, and Silas are in jail. They sing hymns. How many of us, if we were in jail, in prison for our faith, would sing hymns? He did. The, the doors just burst open. He walked out. The Philippian jailer was going to kill himself. And Paul goes, no, we're all right. We're not going anywhere. And this jailer came to faith in Christ and became a member of the Philippian church. That's who this church is as he writes this letter. And so Paul begins, so my friends in Philippi, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Because you know what? They're not. They're not of one mind in the Philippian church. And if you keep reading chapter 4, verse 1, Eodia and Syntyche, two obvious leaders in the church, are in enough disagreement with one another that Paul calls them on the carpet by name. Can you imagine being called on name for all eternity in the scriptures? That, you know, you're, you're, you need to agree with one another. We don't know what their disagreement was. But... They're obviously dividing the church, and he's calling them to be of the same mind. And he says, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That word rivalry or self-conceit could also be translated vainglory. Uh, do not pursue glory empty life. Because we as Christians are to be gloryful. Jesus is the one who came full of glory, full of grace and truth. And we as God's people project that to our community. And Paul is saying in Philippi, my friends, you're not. You're glory empty people, you're glory starved. Be of the same mind and be gloryful. That's what, that's what the thought is here. And I step back and I push my way from my desk this week and I go, wow, isn't the world glory starved? Isn't the world that, that we live in always trying to pour into it what they think is fully satisfying lifestyle and it's so unsatisfying? That's what the word glory means. We have glory of God, his renown. But yet, as his people, we get glory from God. And the whole letter of Philippians, when we do that, we're full of great joy, no matter what's going on in our lives. And he's saying, complete my joy, Philippians, by being gloryful, and this is how you do that. Well, how do you do that? Well, Paul tells us in this text. Now, remember who this is. This is Paul. I had one person at Jake's one time says, well, Paul never met God. And I said, are you kidding me? You ever read Acts chapter 9? He's on the Damascus Road. I didn't know that. I go, well, and I walked through the whole experience that Paul had as he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And this man planted the Western church, my friends, we are here today because of Paul, the greatest church planner ever, and has ever, never has there been one like him. And he's calling them to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That we think like Jesus. Dr. T.W. Hunt said that's the most difficult thing we as Christians have to do. How do we think like Jesus? Well, it starts at the heart. And what Paul reminds us is that we, number one, we recognize who Christ truly is. Two, we act upon that recognition. And three, we subject ourselves as his expectant subjects. One, we recognize. Two, we act upon that recognition. And three, we live as expectant subjects of the king. Let's look at this. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's the beautiful mystery that authentic Christians follow, that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Fully God, fully man. Not 70% God, 30% man. Or 70% man, with an injection of God. No, my friends, mysteriously. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning, while he lived his earthly life, he lived just as me and you, perfectly unto the Father. That's who Jesus is. For no one taught the way he taught. No one loved the way he loved. 
No one challenged the far right of his day the way he challenged them. No one charged, challenged the far left of his day as Jesus challenged them. And yet in that, he loved us to the point, as we say in the creed, he died on our behalf, rose again to demonstrate he was God, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, and therefore us, have this mind. He is fully God, fully man. Because in our culture, there are many gods, just like there was in Philippi. It's a Roman city, way up in Macedonia. The, if you're not a Christian in Philippi at this time, you're a worshiper of one of the Roman deities. And he's saying to the church, have this mind. Because every culture has, ever since that time, remade God or gods in their own image. It's a fascinating thing when you talk to people. Because somebody will say, well, when I think of Jesus or I think of God, I think of him this way. And they fill in any kind of meaning. And I would encourage us, again, just ask questions to people. That's fascinating. Tell me how you arrived at that conclusion. Most people really haven't thought about that with that amount of depth, to be honest with you. Some have, and those are really fun conversations. But when it comes to most people, they really haven't thought about it for five minutes. They just want to box God and what they want to box him into. And then you ask permission. Well, if what you believe were not true, would you want to know? There's two points to that. Do they believe truth can be known? And secondly, if they do believe truth can be known, if they're wrong, do they want to know? That's fun conversation as well. And then you ask permission to share. Because the reality, my friends, is we worship a God who's fully God, fully human, and Jesus himself says to Thomas, who says, Lord, we don't know the way. He just told them, in, in, in my father's house, there's many rooms, and it's one ginormous house, and there's room for you. And you know the way. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know what you're talking about. And he says, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he's saying that within the close confines of his friends at that time. And therefore, my friends, Paul is exhorting us to recognize this. To have this mind, if we call ourselves Christians, he is truly God, truly man, and therefore we learn in that and have his mind. And we can't have that mind until we have the heart, until we turn it all over to him. Because as Tim Keller says, what the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desires, and the will carries out. Because you can have all the head knowledge you want. But we have to take our heart and put our full trust in him and recognize him. So that's the first point. One, recognize. Two, we serve. So what did Jesus do? Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is describing not only Jesus' life, if we're to have his mind, we're to have his servant's heart for others. And he's calling the Philippian church, specifically we find out a couple chapters later, especially Eodia and Syntyche, which are causing this division in Philippi, that we to have a posture to serve others, and it begins right in the home. Husbands serving our wives, wives serving our husbands, mutual submission, submitting to one another. Children 
honoring your parents, honoring your teachers, listening to the authority, even if they're awful. Because you'll grow up and you'll have an awful boss one day. I promise you. You learn it now. And we love our neighbors. We care for our neighbors. And through our vocations, and even in the church. This is where it's most evident we serve one another. Because the world looks at and sees how the church loves one another by serving one another. And they go, wow, I've never seen it this way before. You know, it's interesting. In the Avon Lake group, the assignment was for us on Sunday night to go and and make sure we ask our spouses, how may I serve you? You know, and we're, we're taking two weeks, right? You know, between meetings. And I, I recognized about halfway through this week, I hadn't asked Kimmy that question. I go, honey, how may I serve you? And she said, what do you want? <laughs> Nothing. I'm supposed, I'm leading this group. I'm supposed to serve you, you know? I, it needs to be part of our posture. Why? Because Jesus emptied himself. That doesn't mean that Paul is saying he became, he emptied himself of his godness and became human. There's a controversy about what did Paul mean. No, he's saying from, from he be, in becoming human, he served this way. How? Dying upon the cross for us. And he's describing a life of service and the ultimate service that anybody could have done for us is to die for us. Greater love has no one than this, and he who laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did. Because, so Paul is acknowledging that, therefore, the way Jesus served, we too are to die to ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus, and serve one another. Well, that's not the easiest thing to do. How do we do that? Well, he doesn't stop there. And he tells us how. As expectant subjects of the king. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess on heaven and under the earth, and under the, on the earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day, one day, we say it in the Creed every week, both in the Nicene and the Apostles, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's what Paul's talking about, that, that this day will come in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. When he returns, all three of the people across the ages will be raised again and will confess, will bow their knee and confess that he is Lord willingly or unwillingly. If you rejected him in this life, you will be one of the unwilling ones. If you receive him into your life, you'll be willing to recognize that he is Lord. And the Greek word there, kurios, means ruler, king. Now, we Americans don't do kings, right? You know, we, we did fight a revolutionary war. It always just blew Martin Minns away, who grew up in Nottingham, England, now an American citizen, when we were 15 years ago wrestling with what we were wrestling with. You know, and, and there was a group of Americans who were saying, but we want to stay in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And, and Martin would say, you're Americans. You fought a revolution, didn't you? You've got more in common with the Africans and with the Australians and the Global South than you do with the structures of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And what he's trying to get, Paul's trying to get across here is that he is king, he is ruler, and you are not. 
It's exactly what was happening in Peter. Remember the confession just a month ago. Peter confesses that Jesus Christ is the, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember that story. They're in Caesarea Philippi, not the same place, by the way. Caesarea Philippi was the city right over Judah's borders where Herod had built a great city and Caesar Augustus had taken it over and renamed it for himself. Can you imagine? I will name the city Gene. Or we will Latinize it. We'll call it Genius, you know? It's the city of Genius. And it was one of the crown jewels of the Roman Empire. It was gorgeous. But originally, there was a temple there for the god Pan. We get the word pantheism from it. You know what pantheism is? You know? How many of you have seen Avatar? Raise your hand. You can raise your hand high, okay? It's a safe place. Good, good, good. It's a safe place, and you can watch an R movie every now and then. It's okay here. Um, that's pantheism. You know, you take your ponytail and plug it into the weed, and you're one with the weed. You know, you take your ponytail and you plug it into the, the flying pterodactyl. I want one of those things. And, and you, you, the, you're one with the pterodactyl as you're flying into battle. That's pantheism. God is everywhere. Everything is in God. Right? That's pantheism. And that's what they were worshiping in Caesarea Philippi. And Caesar Augustus made it worse because he built a temple for himself. And so while you're worshiping all these other gods, you better worship Augustus. Because remember, the Roman Empire stretched from India all the way to Great Britain and around the Mediterranean, North Africa. And if there was any kind of rebellion, it might take some time for them to get there, but they would squash it. And they did, regularly. And so Peter is in the shadow of all this power. And Jesus says, hey, in the marketplaces of Caesarea Philippi, in our modern context, it would be as if Jesus said, in the marketplace at Crocker Park, who do they say that I am? And it's in that shadow of all those temples, in that power of Rome, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what he's saying there is, Caesar's not Lord. You are Lord. Because that's what the Christ means. The anointed one who rules, not only an earthly rule, but a heavenly rule. That's who God is in Jesus Christ. Even among the brutal, violent, and ruthless regime of Rome. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and there's no one higher than Jesus. And you know, our culture fills in those meanings, I know, but that's okay. We're the ones who take this to them. And you know, if, if you were to attend a function where Queen Elizabeth was introduced, she wouldn't be presented as, this is Liz Windsor. She would pre be presented as this. I looked it up. How is the queen presented? This is how she's introduced. You can, you can hear the British, Her Majesty, um, Her Majesty Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith. 
Every part of the queen's title explains her true identity because that's who Queen Elizabeth is. And so, my friends, every time we state the creed and we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, and then his attributes. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. He's seated at the right, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. As we state that, it presents to us, reminding us of who God is, in terms that communicate who he is to us and the authority that he commands. And you know, no one ever reacted to Jesus Christ as so many people in our culture do. Nominally. Oh, isn't that swell? You know, I have had one person at Jake's say, that's great you believe that. I believe that too, but. And I said, dude, nobody ever treated Jesus like the way you're talking about. You know, they either hated him and wanted to kill him, or they ran away, or they bowed down and worshipped him. There's no other way to, to do it. So the question then becomes, is he king of you? There's a great song. Um, in 2010, Rebecca turned me on to Sarah Bareilles. And, and she's great. But this song expresses our culture. And the way one evangelical Christian at one time had to treat her. Had to be. Had to be. Listen to these words. Because the song is entitled, The King of Anything. She says this. King drinking coffee, stare me down across the table while I look outside. So many things I'd say if I were able, but I just keep quiet and count the cars passing by. You got opinions, man. We're all entitled to them, but I never asked. So let me thank you for your time and try not to waste any more of mine. And get out of here fast. I hate to break it to you, babe, but I'm not drowning. There's no one here to save. And the chorus goes like this. Who cares if you disagree? You're not me. Who made you king of anything? So you dare tell me who to be? Who died and made you king of anything? She continues and says, You sound so innocent, all full of good intent. Swear you know best. But you expect me to jump on board with you and ride off into your delusional sunset. I'm not the one who's lost with no direction. But you'll never see. You're so busy making masks with my name on them in all caps. You got the talking down, just not the listening. Who cares if you disagree? You're not me. Who made you king of anything? So you dare to tell me who to be? Who died and made you king of anything? And then there's a, ref a very interesting refrain in this song that says, All my life I've tried to make everybody happy while, while I just hurt and hide. Waiting for someone to tell me it's my turn to decide. And the song ends with the line, Let me hold your crown, babe. 
Sounds pretty glory empty to me, right? She's not asking questions and he's giving her the full fire hose. How much better might this conversation, the song may have never been written if the person had said, just made a friend. Is she even asking questions? Obviously she is. Because this person's not listening. Are our lives, as Paul says in Corinthians, sparking the questions? We're living letters. We're the only Bible they're going to read. And so, my friends, with our glory-empty neighbors, have we made him king? Recognizing who he is with a posture to serve, no matter where God lands us, praying that God would open up those doors, letting him do so, and then, you know, ask a question. Hey, you know, if what you, how'd you reach that conclusion? I'm interested. You know? Let's not get so tied up in our lifestyle. Some are asking such questions. It may seem like some aren't, but if we take the time and listen, sometimes they will. Because we have a king who takes us into the courtroom of his presence when we don't deserve it. He welcomes us into his courtroom, and it's as if all the courtiers would say, who let Gene in here? And the Heavenly Father says, he's wearing my righteousness. He's welcome. And every single one of you wear his righteousness as we place our trust in him. He takes us just as we are. That's Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord. He did that all for us. Now let's serve. He's king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful word from Paul pleading Iodia and Sentiki to agree. I thank you that we don't have such divisions and we pray that we would have this mind in ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. That he is our Savior, our Lord, and our God. And therefore we can serve one another within our families, within the church, and in our community. Making sure that our neighbors know that they are loved because of the way we serve them well. And Lord, recognizing that you are, Lord Jesus, fully God and fully human, and you're both our perfect substitute and our perfect Savior. Help each and every one of us, O oh Lord, to acknowledge his Lordship through greater obedience to your commands, your lifestyle, which are perfect freedom. For we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Amen.